Please turn with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, this morning as we look into the Word of God together. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, serves as our foundation, and we find ourselves in a, a momentary parenthesis as we are slowly taking a look one by one. We will not look at all the apostles, but we're looking at some of the choice apostles and refamiliarizing ourselves with them because it will make a difference as we continue to study Matthew's gospel and consider their ministries and how Christ called them to himself and how he uniquely used them. And so today we're going to look at John, the beloved apostle, uh, thinking about these men who are called the master's men, the apostle John. And just like last week when we looked at his brother and said if his brother had a bi biographical subtitle, it would be jealous and zealous would be one way that we could put it. For John, it would be the Apostle of Love, or the Beloved Apostle. Join me in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when Jesus had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal all kinds of diseases and all kinds of, all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This morning, for the next few moments, we're going to consider John's journey in Christ, how he came to Christ, how Christ called him to himself, and because of his becoming a disciple and then sent out as an apostle, how Christ slowly sanctified him and prepared him for the future ministry that he would have for him. So far, we've looked at the life of Peter. We've looked at the life of Andrew. Again, last week, we looked at the life of of James. And so much of point number one is we consider John, John's background. If you were here last week, much of the same background as far as familial information and where John was from is the same as his brother James. They were both the son of Zebedee. James being the brother of John, John being the brother of this specific James, both of them being the sons of Zebedee. Now, he also, like James, if you remember, was a son of thunder. And like Andrew and Peter, these men are brothers. John chapter 1, verse 36 tells us when John himself wrote the Gospel of John, his perspective of the life and ministry of Christ, when John the Baptist was preaching, John the Baptist identified when Jesus came upon the scene, John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And immediately, if you remember, when we looked at Peter and Andrew's biographical study, he pointed the attention away from himself and said, Behold, speaking to his disciples and those there present, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to save his people, who has come for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that God has sent. In John chapter 1, John tells us of his own biography that John immediately left and began following Christ that very day. So we think about the ministry of John the Baptist being a forerunner before Christ. It's just a reminder to us that if you have been serving the Lord in a particular ministry, the fruit of that ministry is not all in yet. John the Baptist faithfully preached in an obscure place out in the middle of the wilderness. And yet, as we see one by one, many of these disciples 
were once followers of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist then preaches Christ and points them to Christ. And yet the compound effect of John the Baptist's ministry is continuing even today. What a reminder that is for us. What a comfort that is for us that every time, friends, you teach the Word of God, you stand and preach the Word of God, just like Andrew was known as that apostle who simply brought others to Jesus, John the Baptist is known as that forerunner of Christ who says, I am not the Christ, but he is the Christ. And again, what a great model for us. Every time we teach parents, every time we parent, to say to our children regularly, I am not the Christ. Hey, darling, I'm about to drop you off here at this event, and I want you to honor us. I want you to honor. But listen, I am not the Christ. He is the Christ, and he is present with you. Live for him. Honor him. Every time you stand to teach, much like John the Baptist's ministry, we simply are faithful to the task that God has called us to. And John fulfilled the work, John the Baptist, fulfilled the work that God had called him to do. And one of that fruit, one of the fruits of that, was John the Apostle. Secondly, I want us to take note of John's personality. And we have quite a number of scriptures here that help us to understand who John was. And just like you and just like me, all of us began our journey in grace immature. All of us began our journey in Christ, in Christ a babe in Christ. Not all of us arrived mature and perfected, and such was the same with John. Even though he's known as the Apostle of Love, he did not begin his ministry with that title. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, we see an example of that that we'll look again to in a minute. But he was passionate for Christ. He was zealous for the truth, but to a fault. He, he was volatile in that particular situation. He was brash for the truth and did not have the discernment that, that was needed. And so Christ was there. And Christ helped him to understand that not everyone who is different from us is against us. John's story is a journey. He moves from being a son of thunder. If you remember last week, we saw where James and John desired to call down fire upon the Samaritans right there on the spot. And Jesus calls them sons of noise, literally sons of thunder, to being known as the beloved apostle. Or when you read his epistles in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that really comes through his heart of love. And much like Peter, we see a seasoned man who's grown in grace, as Peter exhorts the church to do at the end of his epistle, 2nd Peter, but grow, church, in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So friends, it's a reminder to us that our doctrine does not mean we can't be gracious. And to be gracious does not mean we cannot have sound Doctrine. So what a beautiful portrait of grace it is to look at Peter and now to look at John here for a few minutes this morning and to see how they go from being sharp, razor edge sharp, to being men who hold fast to the truth, but the love of Christ uh, constrains them. It is common for new disciples, new converts to have a zeal and a passion for Christ and to have more passion and more zeal than they actually have wisdom. And also, saints, here this morning, it is common that the longer we live in Christ, that our passion and our zeal for Christ begins to wane. It is true on the opposite end of the spectrum that there's a similarity sometimes to our physical health and our age and years that our own passion for Christ, if we do not guard it, uh, can become lukewarm. 
And that's what Jesus addresses to the church at Ephesus. He says, you are lukewarm, and I can't stand lukewarmness. Paul gives us the reminder that even though our outer man is perishing, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And I want to remind us this morning that we see polar things here in the life of John's example. What's worse than having maybe too much zeal in your beginning years, again, is having no zeal at all. And I want to remind us what is said about the mission of God and the mission of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, when the prophecy is given about the coming Messiah, we are given this confidence, this promise that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, will perform this prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. We see this attributed to God himself. Psalm 69, verse 9, we see the psalmist say, Zeal for your house, O God, has consumed me, or literally eaten me up. And we see the example of Christ as he purged the temple in John chapter 2, verse 17. And the text tells us that as Jesus threw out the money changers in his temple, that it was at that moment that the disciples remembered this psalm that was said in Psalm 69, his disciples remembered, zeal for your house has consumed me. So as we look at this, we're not saying that zeal and passion, being a son of thunder, is ultimately wrong. It must be tampered with, tempered with the grace and the love of Christ. And so we see this journey in John's personality. personality. You know, listen, all of us are created in the image of God, but we're not all the same in personality, are we? God has made us uniquely different. And what we need him to do is by his spirit to lead us in the truth of scripture. We need to immerse ourselves into the word of God as the spirit leads us into the truth. And as we take that natural personality that God's given to us and to remind ourselves of the, the gospel, the righteousness of Christ being placed upon our account, and we submit ourselves to the Lord every single day and say, Lord, would you work in and through me my unique giftings as you've made me? but may it be constrained by the love of Christ. Now, 80 times in John's writings, the Gospel of John, the first, second, third epistle of John, and the book of Revelation, he uses the word love 80 times. And so if you're wondering, why do we call him the beloved disciple or the beloved apostle or the apostle of love? It's because of his usage of that word in his, in his writings. But equally, right there behind it, he's also known as the Apostle of Truth. Forty-five times in his epistles, we see him emphasizing and talking about the truth of God's Word. And so what an example he is for us as he points us to Christ, the example of Christ. Now, this is unique to John's writing style. He wrote about this, and he preached about it, and God used him to give major teaching to the church. And John has a way in his personality, we can see his personality working through, particularly in 1 John, where he has absolute themes. I want to give you just a couple. If you turn to the book of 1 John, if you don't, I could just give you the references. But in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we see that John, in his writing style, being the beloved apostle and also the apostle of the truth, has a comprehensive style, as some experts like to call him, um, in Johannine literature, taking his name and giving it a type of, in his writings, they say that his writings is cyclical, and he is comprehensive. He, he comes back to his subject again and again. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we see an example of this, where we see the themes of light and dark. He brings them together. And, and, and the Word of God says this, 1 John 1, 5, he says, This, then, 
is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness or sin at all. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in the darkness, we lie, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Right out the gates in John's epistle gives us an example of how he is comprehensive in his, in his teaching, in his assessment with just an economy of words. John wants us to know the truth, and he does not want anyone to leave deceived in their understanding of his, of his teaching. So one example of this we see is in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the themes of light and dark. The second example we see of this is in 1 John 2, verse 4, where he places emphasis on truth and lies. For example, chapter 2, verse 4, He that says, I know him, speaking of an individual and his relationship with God, He that says, I know him, and does not keep or practice his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So immediately he invokes upon the truth of testimony, but also of the lie of a false practice. And you say, well, okay, LeGrand, you're making a great point that he is complete in his teaching. But friends, let me just remind us, John is a gift to the church here. uh, Because not only the Holy Spirit leads him to pen this inspired scripture for us, but if you're ever wrestling with your own salvation, go to the first John, the epistle of first John, and, and read it comprehensively. Pray through it and ask the Lord to show you maybe your sin struggle and whether you are a liar and you're not practicing the truth and you're not walking in the pattern of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel, but yet you are saying one thing and you're living a deceitful reality. Truth versus lies. Or maybe you find yourself as a counselor to someone that you're sharing the gospel to. First John is a gift to us to turn in the Bible to, to, to show people how they can be assured of that they are in Christ and not a false professor. So light and dark, truth and lies. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, we see the example of sin, the parallels of sin and righteousness. Sin and righteousness. Verse 6 says there, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Little children, and the idea here, kind of a guiding principle, is speaking of practice. It's not talking about a standalone or who would be sufficient for these things. As the psalmist says, my sins crush me. Literally, Lord, if you should count them, they are more than the, the number of our heads. So if you're wondering, wait a second, this is, this is unbelievable. He's speaking within the context of practice. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, God, is righteous. And then one other example I want to give to you is we see his personality, a comprehensive personality, a a total personality given in his teachings. It's chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, where he gives us this parallel of being a child of God and a child of Satan. A child of God and a child of Satan. How can we know who our spiritual father is, if you will? Beginning there in verse 8 of chapter 3, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. How is that? 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love the brethren or his brethren or his brother. Now, going back to John's gospel, this is the theme that John gives, not only the teaching of Jesus, but also the test of discipleship. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, John records Jesus as saying, in that you love one another, loving the body of Christ, testing our hearts to see whether we have a love for the body of Christ in the same way that Jesus has a love for his bride. He gave his life for her, and we cannot do any less as well ourselves. So John provides a wonderful pastoral example for us in his teaching and in his example that we see in his writings. This son of thunder is tempered with a, a Christ-like love that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. John is a great example of it. But speak the truth in love, so that you may grow up in all things into Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body, notice here, for the edifying of itself in love. Friends, let me just remind us, Grace Church, that our church is to be known for our love for Christ, our love for the truth, yes and yes, but also for our love for one another. May they know us, may this community know us by our love, our sacrificial example as we lay down our lives for each other. And then also, I want to extend it a step further, those who we know to be in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters that we live next door. They may go to a, a different sound church than ours, but we love them. We're going to be in heaven for all eternity together because of Christ and because of the precious gospel that, that we all share. If there is a spirit of contentiousness, a spirit of jealousy, things that, that are constantly wanting to creep up in the, within the life of the church, and that is what we are known for, then that is not a healthy thing, friends. And may the Lord keep us and fence off those things from our hearts. May we be able to speak the truth in love and ultimately edify for the purpose of love, Christ-like love for one another. When a pastor faithfully preaches the truth in love and teaches the truth in love, Christ uses it to unify the body. As you faithfully lead your home in the same way, Christ will bless your home. As you faithfully minister in the name of Christ, with these things all put together, the Lord will bless it for his glory. Now, John is the beloved disciple, the beloved apostle. He was a true friend of Christ. He's not only the beloved disciple because of his emphasis and how the Holy Spirit leads him to pen this in his writings. He's also known as the beloved disciple because of his relationship with Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit gives us insight into his relationship with Christ. In fact, no other disciple or no other apostle that we know of, at least it's expressed to us that the Holy Spirit wants us to know, it expresses the love for Christ that John does. In John chapter 13, verse 23, we find John next to Christ. In fact, literally on his person, on his shoulder, on his chest, wanting to hear every word that Christ says. The picture is given to us. John did not want to miss a thing because John had a sense. John had an awareness of knowing these are last moments that we will have with Christ. And John wants to capture every word. He treasures his relationship with Christ. He treasures the conversations and the teachings of Christ. And what we'll see next week 
unlike that of Judas. We'll see that Judas had all the same advantages of these other apostles and disciples and yet did not value. He's like that older brother at the table with the father. He's there in person. He's dressed the right way, doing the right things, but he has no heart of love for Christ. He is a lost professor. In John 13, 23, we see that beautiful portrait of of John next to Christ at the final supper that they will share. In John 19, 25, again, looking at John's personality, we see that he stood at the foot of the cross, unashamed, not, not scared. He has a shepherding heart to stand there comforting in a pastoral way the mother of Jesus and his own mother who is present there. And one thing that I discovered, I don't know everything, and I discovered new things in my study that I, I didn't really, if I knew it, I forgot it. But it is believed last week as we talked about Salome, the mother of James and John, coming to Jesus, asking for that, that place at the right hand uh, for her sons. But it's believed that Salome and Mary were, were sisters, and so that John and James were cousins to the Lord Jesus. And that's not something I necessarily put together or remembered and I'm refreshed in as in this particular study. In John 19:25, there you see John with his aunt and with his mother and with the others that are present there at the cross, unashamed to affiliate with their dying Lord and Savior. In John chapter 20, verse 2, we see that John outran Peter. Well, John doesn't speak of himself too much other than with this, designa- this designation, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Now, that may sound arrogant, but obviously, number one, it's a fact. And then number two, the Holy Spirit led him to put that there. And then one of the few instances where he actually mentions himself is very funny in John chapter 20, verse 2, where he makes note of the fact that he outran Peter to the tomb of the resurrected Lord. We always laugh at that, don't we? Because it is humorous. Now, I do want to say a note there that it is believed that John was the youngest apostle, much younger than all of the other ones. And there's a number of things that lead us to take note of that and to believe that. But one, maybe off a surface example, is the fact that he outran Peter ably. But not definitive. There's other things we could point to to that as well. Namely, the fact that he was the last apostle to die, and he lived a long time and had a fruitful, effective ministry for Christ after the ascension. In John chapter 21, verse 7, it was John who recognized the resurrected Christ as they are in a boat fishing. He and Peter are in the boat fishing. And where, yes, Peter is the first usually in action, John is the first cognitively. John is the first in affection, uh, you could say. All of these things give us a little bit of insight, a portrait into the, the life of John. He had a deep zeal for Christ. And over time, that deep zeal moved into a deep love for Christ and for others. And the Holy Spirit used him to be a a pastor to the first church, the first century church, you could say. So we'll see in just a moment that he loved to call the church my little pideons, my little children. Now that sounds, if you're not used to that type of language, we don't use that kind of language today, but it's a very grandfatherly term. In fact, church tradition says that he would regularly walk into the assembly room where they would meet and just pat, as an elderly apostle, pat people on the head and just say, my little children. So we have a very warm, affectionate understanding of who this son of thunder ultimately became. John was the apostle of love for Christ. Now, we've looked at his background and a little bit about his personality, but I want us to look at some of the teaching moments that John experienced with the Lord Jesus. 
much like Peter, where Peter had some of his best moments and some of his worst moments all at the same time, John had a few of those himself, much like we have as well. I can look back in my own experience as a young Christian and growing in my teenage years of moments of failure, moments where I was unkind, moments where I was not a friend to someone who just needed a Christian friend. I brought a, maybe a spirit of judgmentalism to the table when they just needed me to love them and to shepherd them. I can think of own, my own instances in my own life, and maybe you can too. And this is a great reminder for us that these apostles that God chose for his purposes and discipleship are ordinary men just like me and just like you. And God gave them grace and a lot of teaching moments. One of the first lessons that John needed to learn was a lesson of the balance of truth and love. And we find this in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. And I'll only touch on this briefly because this is the same account. Well, very early on, John, much like his brother James, desired out of zeal for Christ, a passion for Christ, to call down fire upon the Samaritans. Friends, there's times we experience these types of moments and we guise them or they're under the guise of having a zeal for the Lord. And much like for James, this was a teaching moment for them of remembering what ministry was all about. This is not the time, you could say, of Elijah, where Elijah did call down fire upon that very people group in that very area. But he says, this is the reason the Son of Man has come, is to seek and to save that which is lost. And so essentially, James and John go preach the gospel, preach that the kingdom of God is here, James and John go out in the grace of the Lord Jesus, be ready for persecution, but preach the truth in love. And we find that he learns when that, that lesson very, very early. And so in 1 John, we find that he comes full-orbed in this lesson of both the balance of truth and love from Luke chapter 9. In 1 John, we see him as an apostle giving razor-sharp edge truth, balanced with a repeating refrain, my children love one another love one another love one another so again friends in a day to where most people categorize preaching and that they think that preaching can only be like this or like that we see a biblically healthy view of teaching and preaching here by this example of john the baptist you can see a lot of preachers today if they have a very visible or public form of ministry Nine times out of ten, they may err on the side of love. You hear only the wonderful, beautiful message of the love of Christ, but the problem is, is you don't ever hear the truth, the truth of sin and sanctification and repentance and all of those types of things, that sound doctrine. Or you can see a flip side of that, and you can have some preachers where they're, they're only preaching truth, but there's not an ounce or drop. If you were to squeeze that, that manuscript dry, there's not an ounce of love coming out of that, that message. So may the Lord, friends, protect us from that. And may he, by his spirit, give us a heart that is a heart after his own shepherds, as he says that he will do when he says, I will give them shepherds after my own heart. Where he speaks of Peter as well in the church at Ephesus, shepherd the flock of God among you. May the Lord give us a shepherd's heart to those that he gives that opportunity to and those who teach the word of God. So the first teaching moment that we see very early in the Gospels is that balance of the truth and zeal for Christ and that of love. The second one is one of judgmentalism. And if you were in my Sunday school class this morning, this was our theme. And so I did not give this as an example because it was in the sermon. All right, so let's turn together in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. 
Mark chapter 9, verse 38. And we see a very practical example to where Mark is quick to judge other people. Now, I know you don't struggle with that, kidding aside. We all struggle with the sin of, of judgmentalism. All of us do. It's a part of the flesh. It's a part of our broken world where our eyes quickly assess other people and, and what they're doing. In fact, churches are known to be like this. Churches are known to be threatened by sister churches in the area. And churches, you know, they, they start competing and you start having Unity Baptist Church and then Unity Number 2 Baptist Church. And it just goes on and down and down. And that's, that's sad, isn't it? But it happens. We get it. It happens. Well, it happened in the Apostle John's life as well. And in Mark chapter 9, I hope you'll find the passage there. This, this comes right after that, that asking where the disciples ask him, well, who is the greatest? And you see that in verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked him, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, like nobody's going to speak up here. For, for on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, we, we look at these guys, again, with judgmental perspective and judgmental eyes, like, I can't believe that. You know, but that's what kids do. That's what immature people do. Who is the greatest? Who's the greatest quarterback? Who's the, who's the greatest team? Who's the greatest among us? We're, we're constantly competing, aren't we? That's just the way we think. Lest we look at the apostles with judgmental eyes as if we can't relate. Friends, this is us all day long. Maybe not in this particular way. But they said they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And so he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first... He shall be last of all and the servant of all. Then he took a little child and set, them, set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now that sets up the stage for our text here. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone... Um, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And so we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Christ said, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Here we see John is, is guilty of a, a quick judgmentalism, tribalism, that says, hey, Christ, Jesus, we, we saw them performing these miracles, but they're not with our tribe. Now, if you remember earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, the, 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 the leaders of the day have accused Jesus of being satanic. They, they, they've ascribed the miracles that Jesus has performed as being that of Beelzebub. And if you remember, Jesus says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Here we see the, the flip side of that argument, where Jesus is saying, look, they are not against us. We are united. They may not be right here, but listen, because they're not walking with us or in the inner circle, as I have chosen you guys, does not mean they are against us. Now, we could, we could spend a whole sermon right here. But friends, let me just say this. What a lesson for us as we think about a quick assessment of people and ministries, a quick response to judgmentalism. Grace, may we be secure in Christ here at our church. 
May we never be threatened by any other sister church in town or ministry or someone where if the Lord chooses to bless and pour out his blessing on a like-minded church of faith and practice and they hold to the pure gospel of Christ, may we rejoice with them that rejoice. May we never be those who are like, whoa, 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 because it's not happening here, uh, it can't surely be a good thing. Listen, we rejoice where the kingdom of God advances. We're actually all on the same team. Again, assuming we hold to the pure and true sound doctrine and the precious gospel of Christ. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the church, he, he says, I am in chains and there are those within the body of Christ. So get this. They're redeemed. They're children of God. They believe the same gospel that we believe, but they're rejoicing that I am in prison because they're jealous of my ministry. And so because I am in prison, they rejoice and they're happy. It's almost like they feel like that I've been moved sidelined, so now we can have a moment in the spotlight. And here's what Paul says. I rejoice where Christ is preached. Friends, I know if you've walked in Christ for very long, you've been in a moment like that where there's a feeling of threatenedness, where there's things that are taking place. You get wounded because you hear of assessments that other people make about your church's ministry or, or that type of thing. Listen, man, we have the humility of Paul where we say, I, we rejoice where Christ is proclaimed. Period. End of story. End of the sentence. Well, again, we, we, that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. The second lesson that John was quick to learn. In fact, that reference in Mark 9 is the only reference where only John is mentioned or where he initiates something with Christ there, and it's, and it's not good. Just a third quick lesson we see is in Matthew chapter 20. If you'll turn there with me briefly. Matthew 20, verse 20. And this is a lesson in ambition versus humility. Ambition versus humility. And if we're, we have the eyes to see, what we find is many of these, these lessons that are learned are often lessons that are experienced in youth or in the young believer's life. The lessons of truth and love, quick to judge and discern, ambition, having that drive yet not tempered with humility. In Matthew 20, verse 20, he learns a lesson here. Again, when the mother of Zebedee's sons... Salome came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. That's speaking of Jesus. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons, this is James and John, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask or are able to drink the cup that I am about to drink. And be baptized with the baptism that I am now baptized with. So they said to him, oh, we are able. <laughs> they have no clue what they're talking about. So Jesus said to them, well, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Absolutely so. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they have a way of lording it over them. And those who are great exercise, uh, great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, my disciples. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, 
let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We see as we look at this, this lesson that John learned in his life, we're not trying to exalt John here this morning, but we're learning from those who've gone before how Christ has worked in their life. And if you're like me, we can look at our history and our walk with Christ and the lessons that come flooding back in the same kind of moments that we have had, just like this one, where we forget what it's all about. We view success as that as like a ladder. We're, we're all climbing to success, moving from this position to move to this position. And in all of that ambition and all of that drive that we may have, both physically and spiritually in life and careers and spiritually of life within the church, this is an important lesson of humility that John and the other apostles need to learn. Again, Jesus reminding them, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served, excuse me, did not come to be served, but to serve. What a wonderful example as we look to Christ, as we are servants and slaves for Christ. Our fourth point I want us to look at briefly here this morning is, is John's doctrine. John's doctrine. As I mentioned a moment ago, and if you'll go ahead and turn with me to just 1 John, just generically that way if you would want to look at some verses, you can be ready to do that. John's doctrine, again, we emphasize that the word truth is used 45 times in John's writings. He was committed to the truth. He was passionate about the truth. The word love is used 80 times in its different forms. And the word witness, we are witness to these things. We've seen it with our eyes. We were there. We saw it. Witnessing of the gospel, both by experience and also the active form of witnessing to witness the, the gospel in the form of a verb. These are words that are themes, and you could actually summarize John's teaching with this. Truth of God, the love of God, and the witness of God. What a great summary if we were to leave it there. In John's gospel, the emphasis that we could walk away with is, is twofold. John is committed in John's gospel to give us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The deity, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And as you read the gospel of John as a whole, that is what the theme and the purpose of it is. And there's also a secondary theme of the sovereignty of God. In John's gospel, John is very clear of God's role in salvation, God's role in the works of men, God's role in the gospel, God's role in his people, God's role in the new birth. John puts a strong emphasis on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. So we move into the epistles of John. John wrote five different books of the Bible, John's gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. To summarize this teaching here in 1st John, it is that no true believer can live, no professing believer can live in habitual sin. I want to go back to what I was saying earlier. What a practical book for us. And what a practical book as we seek to be disciples of Christ who try to make other disciples as we fulfill the Great Commission. And John gives us those tests of fellowship, whether are we walking in the light? Is confession of sin present in our life? Or do we live in patterns of unconfessed sin with no concern of sin? Yes, we may worship with his people. We may go through the form and the function. But is there genuine repentance of sin, confession of sin? 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4, is there the fruit of obedience in our life? 1 John 2, 9 through 11, love for Christians. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, you talk about a doctrine that is archaic with our world today. 
a hatred for the wickedness in the world, a hatred for the world's system, and a love for Christ. That's described for us in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Again, a number of things we could point out, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, a perseverance in doctrine, a perseverance in the truth. So 1 John is a powerhouse sledgehammer that helps us to understand our own salvation, but also to counsel others as well. 2 John is a very short epistle, speaking of John's doctrine, and it warns against false doctrine and also false teachers. And then in 3 John, we see the admonishment to stay away from evil. And then in the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see the theme is that Jesus Christ is returning again. John, who saw the ascension of Christ, John, who saw the resurrected Christ, gives us that confidence of knowing that Christ will return for his own again. Number five, very quickly, we notice John's assignment. If you'll look with me in John chapter 19, probably our last passage of Scripture that we'll look at here this morning. John chapter 19, this is too important to skip over. John chapter 19. 19. We see John's assignment that was a special privilege for him, distinguished from the other disciples. John chapter 19 and verse 25, we're right in the middle of the narrative of the crucifixion. Christ is uttering his last breaths and moments on the cross. And as he's hanging there, he turns his attention. He is not speaking to his father at this point. His words are few as he's hanging on the cross, but this is one of his brief statements that he utters in his dying moments. In verse 25, he says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now when Jesus therefore saw his mother, now notice here, and the disciple whom he loved, speaking of John himself standing by, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, speaking of John, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now, we understand from this passage and from church tradition that John took Mary in and that Mary lived for many years after the death of Christ. We know that John was a pastor, and I'll touch on that in just a moment, But before his public ministry would commence in a more public way, his chief ministry, his assignment from his precious Lord was the care, the stewardship of Mary, his mother. At this point, it is believed that Joseph is already deceased. He's not present. He's not on the scene. Thus, the, the concern and care that Jesus had for his mother. But what a privilege it was that John received. Now, I do believe that John would receive this assignment anyway because of his unique relationship with Christ. But I want to say this, and I hope I'm not too far off track to say this. What a privilege was missed out upon by the other disciples a hundred times fold, a hundred times fold, of witnessing the death of the Messiah, of not having enough courage to stand with him in his final moments. But notice how there was only one disciple to leave that charge to. And what a commendation that was to John's fearlessness and his love for his Lord. I don't think in any sense from what we know about John that he had a desire to to be the one. It it was not related to anything about reputation or or character. He just simply loved Jesus. Hey, friends, 
May we love Christ and follow that pattern as John points us to Christ. As Paul says to Timothy and to others, follow me as I follow Christ. May we look at John's example and say, John uh, fans the flame of our love for the Lord as well. Our last point this morning as we consider this brief life, this, this, this life of John the Apostle, is John's death. Now tradition tells us that the church at Ephesus, imagine this, the church at Ephesus was planted by Paul. The church of Ephesus was then, after Paul was beheaded, it was a church plant, so he moved on. The church at Ephesus was then pastored by Timothy. And as you look at First and Second Timothy, those epistles are written to define what pastoral ministry is and the doctrine of ministry and all of those things, principles for the church, the New Testament church, but was written with the eye for Timothy in the church at Ephesus originally. Tradition tells us that Timothy stood up one day as an older man, as a, as a very immoral parade was going by, not far from, I don't know whether the temple or, or the church or where he lived, and he went out and essentially began to street preach and to call down their unrighteousness, their lasciviousness, their, their wickedness, and he was beaten to death on the spot, on the street. So Paul was beheaded by Nero. Timothy is, is bludgeoned in the street according to tradition. We do not have scripture to back that up. And then John becomes the pastor. Who will pastor the church at Ephesus? We do not know whether or not Mary has deceased or whether this was a dual ministry where he's certainly able to care for Mary and to take up a pastorate. But tradition tells us that John began to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Talk about a, a trio of pastors for your church, Paul, Timothy, and John. Attempts would be made to kill John, and he would not die. In fact, one tradition is, is that he was thrown into a pit of tar, of, of, of oil, uh, to try to drown him or to, you know, to, to torture him, and he would not die. He was beaten at different times, and he simply would not die. So they finally exiled John to the Isle of Patmos, and we learn this in the book of Revelation. And it's believed that John died around 98 A.D. in a ripe old age, still receiving fresh vision from the Lord and writing and penning some of those last words of the New Testament. So if you will turn with me to the end of the book of Revelation this morning, and let's hear what John has to say as a message to the church here this morning as we've considered his life. If you'll turn with me to the book of Revelation, and as we think about John living out his final days, some say they can mark the cave uh, where he did that on the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea there. This is the warning and the encouragement that John gives to me and to you this morning, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Begin with me in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. John writing, he says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, speaking of Christ, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Friends, this morning as we've considered the life of John, we echo with him as well. What he says here in verse 20, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, as we pray that 
you will fan the flame of our heart with love for Christ. Father, thank you for giving us flesh and blood examples of ordinary men and women, Lord, that you called out for service and ministry that we find in the scriptures. Our hearts are warmed and encouraged that you can use clay pots and vessels such like us, Lord, to be able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much things to cover here, but Lord, we pray that your spirit will take the lesson and, and drive it home to our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.